The Read to Lead Podcast, Episode 37. Hi, I'm Chris Brogan, author of The Freaks Shall Inherit the Earth. And the good news is you're well on your way because only a freak would listen to this. It's The Read to Lead Podcast with my friend Jeff Brown. that many of us spend the overwhelming part of our day never speaking to anybody, but just shooting them off a text or a message is really starting to take its toll. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast with Jeff Brown. Jeff believes that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then consistent and intentional reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast will not only help you narrow this ever important reading list, but also bring you key insights and valuable feedback from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. And now, here's Jeff. Thank you, Joy. Welcome to the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. We'll sit down with a successful and inspiring author and talk about their latest book. And depending on their area of expertise, each week their thoughts on leadership, personal development, career, marketing, business, or entrepreneurship. In this episode, we'll talk with Bill McGowan, co-author of Pitch Perfect, How to Say It Right the First Time, Every Time. In today's episode, Bill will help you understand how to inspire others on your team to do their very best, how to make the most of your staff meetings and stop wasting time, and how to stand up in a room full of people with confidence and command. I want to tell you quickly first about how you can attend for free the first module of Podcaster Academy, four modules taught online along with one-on-one coaching from me to you, and you can attend the first module on April 3rd absolutely free. All you have to do is let me know you'd like to attend. Just send an email to info at podcasteracademy.com. That's info at podcasteracademy.com and put attend in the subject line, and let me know you'd like to attend the first module absolutely free with no obligation. You can find out more about Podcaster Academy in the meantime at podcasteracademy.com. But again, if you'd like to attend, just put attend in the subject line and address it to info at podcasteracademy.com. Bill McGowan is the founder and CEO of Clarity Media Group. A two-time Emmy Award-winning correspondent, Bill has conducted hundreds of interviews with newsmakers, CEOs, celebrities, editors, attorneys, athletes, and authors. He now uses that experience to coach and train everyone from corporate CEOs to celebrities like New York Giants quarterback Eli Manning. He also speaks regularly to large corporate audiences at such companies as Credit Suisse, Condé Nast, and Campbell's. And he is also the co-author, along with Alyssa Bowman, of Pitch Perfect. How to Say It Right the First Time, Every Time. Well, Bill, let me officially welcome you to the Read to Lead podcast. We're very excited to have you on today. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be here. Well, I wanted to start off by uh, digging into a little bit of your background just a bit so we can understand, Bill, what uniquely qualifies you uh, to write a book about communications and, and public speaking more specifically. I've essentially been a storyteller my entire life. Uh, I was in television uh, news and production for over 25 years. And over the course of those years, I think I did sit down interviews with people thousands and thousands of times. And over the years, what became really clear to me was that there was a lot of excess in how people communicated 
a lot of wasted words. Sometimes I would shoot an interview with someone that would roll 30 minutes of videotape and I was only after maybe a 12 or 15 second soundbite, but it would take the 30 minutes to get that one little nugget that I really wanted. And so inevitably over the years, I think I was already doing then what I do now. And that is critiquing how effective and efficient people are at communicating. And back then when I was a journalist, I couldn't reach over the line and say, listen, you know, you'd be a lot better off if you started your answer like this. And I think it would be a lot more compelling. You know, we were ostensibly on, on opposite sides. Now that's what I do. I play the role of an interviewer for many of my clients and after the interview is over, that's the kind of guidance I give, telling them what to steer away from and what to focus in on. You know, we have similar backgrounds. I come from a radio uh, background, and it, and it wasn't unusual for a client to want to come in and voice their own commercial. And, <laughs> and rather than I, – I learned over time that rather than having them sit down and, and do something scripted, which never came out well, almost never, yeah. was to just let them talk for four or five minutes. Then my job was to go in and, and edit that four or five minutes down to 30 seconds right. uh, or whatever it was. So I, I totally identify with what you're saying. Uh, as you began working with with groups and individuals, I know a lot of the same concerns kept coming up again and, and again. What were some of those areas? I think in the business world, everybody is embracing this notion that their executive presence has a lot to do with the possibility of their inv- advancement, how they're seen as a leader. It's now become one of those issues that is brought up in these 360 reviews that goes on mm-hmm. for people professionally. And so it's how to stand in front of a room with confidence and command, how to um, demonstrate leadership qualities. How can I communicate so I'm inspiring others on my team to do their very best? How do I not waste other people's time in a meeting? Um, how can I get to the point, inspire people, position myself as a thought leader, and then all those little techniques I've, I've, had, um, I've had clients tell me, can you work on this person's voice? It, it just isn't the kind of voice that we want to really stay engaged with for more than two or three minutes. Um, how can I fix filler language, the ums and the ahs, the rambling? So those are all contributing to the perception of somebody's leadership abilities and their executive presence, which has really established itself as one of those core requirements for people to get ahead in business today. Now, when you say folks would ask about you know fixing someone's voice, are we talking about like the tone, uh, pacing, anything specific? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, Jeff, because I find that the human voice is a little bit like a fingerprint. I think you're born with one and there are little modifications you can make in it, but essentially that's what you're going to speak with for the rest of your life. But there are techniques I find that I teach clients that can make their voice more interesting to listen to techniques to help them make their key points resonate a little bit more. So while the actual maybe tone of your voice doesn't change that much, we work on some other techniques that um, can make your message resonate deeper. 
Now, Clarity Media Group is in its 13th year. Is that correct? Yes. I know that that eight years in, there was this uh, what I found to be one of the most fascinating stories in the book where on day one with what was at the time your biggest client so far, you managed to turn around what could have been a very, very bad scenario. Do you mind sharing a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, it's a story that I tell in the book that really points out the fact that, you know, we all have these these moments where we do the unthinkable. And for me, it was day one of working at Facebook and doing communication coaching there. And I just kind of neglected to to realize that Facebook is was then based in Palo Alto, California, down in Silicon Valley. And I showed up at the address that I had in San Francisco, which is a good hour away. (laughs) So I have the cab drop me off at the address I have written down, and it turns out to be a nail salon. (laughs) And in my the height of my denial, I thought, well, maybe Facebook's above the nail salon. Is that possible? So, of course, it wasn't. And the word on the other end of the phone was, well, you better get here quickly because we're not happy with you. And, of course, they weren't happy with me. This is day one. It's a terrible way to start. So, I hop in the cab and ask him to break every speed limit going down the 101 to Palo Alto. But I decide I really need to diffuse what was just a bad start. So I decided this is a moment where I really have to fall on my sword cleanly and effectively. And so I sent a text to Brandy Barker, who was the head of communications at Facebook that basically said, listen, terrible way to start the day. This is on me, all my fault. Um, All I can tell you is once I get there, we're going to have an amazing day. And what normally I, I'm a big proponent of face-to-face, voice-to-voice communications, but I felt as though working this out over text, letting some of the toxins get released by texting uh, was, was a good strategy here. And of course, Brandy you know, replied by saying, this is not only a bad reflection on you, it's a bad reflection on me. I rolled the dice. I'm the one who brought you in. So I let her vent a little bit over texting. And we kind of got that all out of our system. And by the time I arrived, she was the picture of professionalism, gracious, warm, and, you know, turned out to be in the end, fortunately, I, I made my prediction stand up. It was a really great day. And, you know, the, my hiccup in the morning was in the rearview mirror at that point. Uh, this is the third time on the show in the last month where we've had a guest on talking about this topic of communications. And one of the common themes that keeps coming up with Ryan Avery uh, a couple of weeks ago and Carmine Gallo, who wrote the book, a talk like Ted uh, is this idea, a very simple one really of practice and that, that a lot of folks just don't do enough of it. They, the, the first time they're delivering their talk or, or communicating an idea, if it's, you know, an office or meeting setting is in that, setting. Share, if you would, what you call uh, the secrets of pitch-perfect communicators. I know practice is first on the list. I find the people who are really good at this are relentless self-improvers. They will practice something 10, 12, 15 times so that they are extremely comfortable with the content. There's a real familiarity to how uh, the, the content's going to flow. And the danger here 
I find is that the better people get at communicating, uh, the more likely they are to shirk the prep time. Uh, you mistakenly think, oh, I've done this dozens of times. There's no reason why I can't nail this with less prep. And it's really interesting. Even the best communicators in the world, presidents of the United States, um, get caught and it shows when they don't put in the necessary prep time. So, and today it's so easy to do meaningful practice. You can record yourself on your tablet, on rolling video on your smartphone. It's really important that I tell clients, you need to not only practice, you need to warm up before an event and warm up out loud. That means in your hotel room, the morning you give a presentation, say the first two minutes out loud. You want to get everything warmed up. It's a very different dynamic than silently playing in your head what you imagine you're going to say. So practice and warming up is absolutely essential no matter how good you get. And then I think there's this element of distinctiveness that's really important. We seem to learn how to present and how to communicate information through osmosis because we all have to sit through other people's presentations. And so there's this sameness about how we go about giving a presentation because we've learned it from everybody else. And, and it seems like everybody's stuck in this very narrow conformity zone mm -hmm. where uh, people start their presentation with the classic, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. <laughs> or, you know, start with the agenda setting that, begins that table of contents that's so numbing at the at the beginning of a of a presentation these are the kinds of things we try to urge people to steer clear of because you don't want to sound like everybody else that's what makes people slump in their chairs and start daydreaming about what they're going to have for dinner that night they're like oh i've heard this before yeah absolutely um you know it's the classic um i'm bill mcgowan i'm here to talk a little bit about public speaking i want to touch on A, B, and C. But before we do that, I just want to take a step back and quickly walk you through a few things. And it's all this kind of housekeeping, agenda-setting, mm -hmm. traffic cop content that is a complete waste of breath. I think there's a way to set the audience's expectation as to what they're going to hear, but you need to hook them first with engrossing them in some kind of story or pull them along on some kind of narrative that isn't immediately obvious to them. So they want to hear what the outcome and the payoff to it is. Yeah, one of the things that, that struck me uh, when I read the book, and it's, and it's similar to one of the things that I teach in Podcaster Academy, an online course uh, I teach to help podcasters be better communicators. Mm -hmm. and, and that's this idea of announcing what you're about to do. I think the example you use is with uh, when telling a story, sometimes we're, we're prone to want to set it up first or announce that we're about to tell a story instead of just telling the story. That's right. The, the, probably the line that I'm getting clients all the time to shed is talking about talking about something. <laughs> it's just an absolute waste of time stutter step that your presentation would be infinitely better if everybody got rid of those. What are some of the, uh, the common, in addition to that, common public speaking tips you tell clients uh, to stay away from. There's some that we've we've all heard at one time or another, like, you know, imagine everybody in their underwear, things like that. That that, that one's ubiquitous. And I've <laughs> never if and never been able to figure out what the point of that is. <laughs> I, I think it would be the most distracting thing in the world. Uh, I had 
a client in not too long ago and I asked her what did she take away from a previous coaching session and she said that the the media trainer who she had worked with who was a woman told her to channel her inner dumb blonde and I, that just perplexed me. I had no idea what that kind of advice is supposed to mean. I, I, I was able to decipher it. And I think what she was driving at was you want to display palpable enthusiasm for the value of the information you're sharing. That's the advice that I give clients. This idea that your enthusiasm for why I'm t- the importance of what I'm telling you is infectious. And if you get up on stage or you stand in front of a room and your number one priority is just getting through this cleanly without any major hiccups or mistakes that would be embarrassing, you're going to deliver it in a very flat way. That should not be your definition of success, the idea of perfection in delivering it. You would be much better off making your definition of success Let me really put my back into this. Let me show why this interests me, why I think this is a good idea. Let me convey my own enthusiasm for what we're pitching here. And then if you have a couple of stumbles and hiccups, that gets so minimized by the fact that your audience sees that you're pumped up over this subject matter. I had a colleague uh, say to me recently, Jeff, I notice a lot of your guests uh, comment on your questions and they'll say things like, well, that's a great question. They must really think you're a wonderful interviewer. And I said to them before I even read your book where you talk about this very thing, I said, no, they're just stalling. <laughs> that, it's true. And I think it's become a very transparent stall tactic. When I see somebody do it in a television interview, that immediately says to me they don't have their answer ready. <laughs> and in fact, I was training a group of people from a company one time and I, in the role play interview, asked the guy, so um, how long have you been with this company? And he said, you know, that's a great question. <laughs> I thought, no, actually, that's a terrible question. <laughs> I was just trying to get some information there. <laughs> so it's, it's been taken to its most ridiculous mm. extreme. Well, if you're not ready to answer a question like that, then you've you got yeah. some, <laughs> some bigger problems, right? right. <laughs> well, obviously, in, in the 21st century, the ways that we communicate are so drastically different than when you and I were, were younger. Uh, right. they're, they're changing. It's much, much faster. And you talk a bit about, in the book, what you call the atrophy of verbal communication. I thought your observations were, were very astute, and I wondered if you could share a little bit about what you mean by that. You know, our verbal communication skills are like any muscle in the body. And if you stop using them, they get flabby and they atrophy. And I think given how much technology has provided us with so many other forms of communicating, texting, emails, um, Instagramming photos, we rely on the spoken word less today than we ever have before. And I think we're, we're losing our ability to be concise, persuasive communicators. This is something that we're constantly working at as coaches. It's a big reason why I wrote the book, because there are things that can happen in verbal communication that just that just exceed any other form. And, and the fact that we, many of us, maybe at work, spend the overwhelming part of our day never speaking to anybody, but just shooting them off a text or a message uh, is really starting to take its toll. 
Similarly, one of the things that uh, Bill touches on early in the book is this communication gap uh, between men and women that exists uh, in, in the workplace. Bill, I wanted to give you the chance to share what Clarity Media is doing to try and, and close that gap a little bit. I would say probably 70 to 75% of our clients tend to be women. And I love, I love working with women. I find them to be great collaborators in a coaching session. They're eager to be better. And traditionally, women have just had it tougher than men when it comes to communicating. I think they have to navigate this very narrow path where they want to demonstrate leadership qualities. They want to be assertive. They want to show conviction behind their ideas. But at the same time, I think people are so quick to label them as humorless or cold or of course, the, the word that's right now on everybody's mind, bossy. And there, there is a lot of truth to this movement right now about ban bossy uh, because women are easily accused of being bossy just because they're showing leadership qualities and how they communicate. So a few things we're trying to strip out of the equation. One of them is apology. And I find uh, women are very quick to drive to their shortcomings or to apologize for something that is not perfect. I worked with a woman not too long ago who was the publisher of a major magazine, and she was about to uh, go into essentially a board meeting to deliver the, the state of her business update. And she had a great year. I think her magazine grew like 15 to 20%. Ad pages were up and everything was looking great. And we're sitting down to do our work together on how we're going to present this information. And the very first slide of the deck was challenges, you know, the headwinds, mm. what went wrong. And so I turned to her and I said, you had a good year, didn't you? And she said, yeah, it was a great year. I said, why are you starting on the negative? Why are you immediately setting the tone for what you didn't manage to get done? And I, I really feel like that is not a, a rabbit hole that a man would fall into as quickly. So these are the kinds of things that we're trying to help our, our female clients with um, much more, trying to bring conviction don't equivocate when presenting your idea. Women have a tendency to back into telling you what they think. Um, they don't tell you what their idea is and then support it. They feel as though they need to create this airtight case for why their idea is valid, and then they reveal their idea. And then, and there's inherent apology in that. Whereas I think men are a little bit more comfortable of stating what it is they think, and then backing it up. And that has a little to do, right, with the fact that men are less concerned with what people think. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you're anything like me, you're somebody who likes to repeat the same point over and over. This causes my wife to roll her eyes when I do this. I think that happens with all married couples, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it does. Well, Bill has, has labeled this expounder, but there's also three other types of poor communicators, cliche champs, minutia lovers, button pressers. And I found a little bit of myself in each one of these, actually, some more than others. Uh, but it was just very eye-opening to, to, to have these labeled and be able to wrap my head around the Bill. Can you share a little bit about each one? Well, you mentioned backspace button pressers. I've come across this a lot recently where 
somebody is conveying a thought and they lose confidence in the middle of that thought, or they've said a word that they feel isn't absolutely perfect to use in this situation. So they interrupt themselves in the middle of the thought to pull out a different word or to start a totally different thought because they realize "Mm, this isn't really totally where I wanted to go. And it creates this very insecure type of feel to a person's communication where they're constantly second-guessing themselves, constantly interrupting, and never finishing a thought. And I find that style of communicating very difficult to listen to, and it really saps you of your conviction. That is, This is one of those traits that if you are trying to bolster your executive presence, you absolutely cannot have this style of communicating creep in. And I find, interestingly, it happens with a lot of um, print reporters, writers, when I work with them, either coaching a book author to go on television or coaching someone from a major newspaper or website who's going to be interviewed. They sit down at their computer and they write away. And the minute they write a word that they don't love, they hit the backspace button several times. And then they type what they think is the perfect word. And interestingly, I find people from the print world mimic that style in spoken communication. They're Mm. constantly trying to improve the thought in the middle of the thought. And what I'm always coaching them is no one besides you knows that that wasn't the absolute perfect way to say that. You know, the best way to say something is the first way you thought. Mm -hmm. If it's not going the way you want, pull the finish line of the answer closer to you, wrap up that thought quicker, and then you can move on in a new sentence, a new thought to what you really want to convey. Minutia lovers is next on the list of poor communicators. We can often think that the more details, the better, but that's not always the case, is it? Yeah, I think there are details in storytelling that wind up really bogging down uh, the story that really are of no consequence to the person listening. You know, if you're telling a story about the time that something happened to you when you were in Dallas and then you interrupt yourself by saying, you know, actually, I don't think it was in Dallas. I think it was in Austin. You know, no one listening to that really cares. And, and I think we've all had that moment at a cocktail party or some social event where we're in the middle of a story and the person we're speaking to suddenly is now looking past our shoulder. At you know, who in this room actually would be more interesting to listen to? <laughs> and people who get bogged down in all these all this needless detail usually will wind up finding themselves on the receiving end of that look past the shoulder. A lot of speakers find themselves in situations where they're asked to talk for 45 minutes or, or an <laughs> hour. And, and the research you know, shows that our attention spans just aren't built for that. Do you find speakers who are guilty of being an expounder oftentimes or are those who find themselves in situations where they're just filling the time? Uh, yeah, I think it's well, you know, I'm watching now all the coverage on television of the Malaysian air flight. Mm-hmm. And I really feel for these anchors having to fill 24-7 news with no information. You know, that that's sort of the ultimate, my gosh, how could you possibly talk for this long without content? Um, it's, it's sort of an exaggerated example. But I'm always 
advocating to people, try not to talk past your content. If you're, if you're asked to speak for 45 minutes and you have 30 to 35 minutes of content, don't gratuitously put 10 minutes of filler in. If you can come up with, uh, you know, a couple of video clips to break it up at say the 10 minute mark, the 20 minute mark, there's always this need to change it up. You know, every 10 or 15 minutes, all these studies show that 18 minutes is the the point past which your audience's attention starts to fall off the cliff. So when I'm doing a presentation, I usually try to do something radically different every eight to nine minutes just to, to change it up and reignite the attention of the audience. But, you know, one of the greatest gifts you can give people is time back in their day. <laughs> so if we're, if we're talking about a meeting, uh, maybe that meeting has been calendared for an hour, but if you send everybody back to their desks 20 minutes early, that's, that's one of the greatest things you could possibly do in their day. Everybody should be thinking about how can I get through this content thoroughly yet efficiently and not waste time, not waste people's time. One of the things we did at a company I used to work for, Bill, was we set an ending time to meetings because we found when we didn't set an ending time, then the meeting took however long it quote unquote needed to take. Yeah, It forced us to be more aware of how much time we were spending on each agenda item. So as we went along, we could make decisions as to whether or not we needed to table something in order to allow time for the next thing or whether or not this thing we were stuck on needed the extra time we were giving it. Yeah, that's a, that's actually a really good strategy to put an end time to it. And also to just remind people in a meeting or in an audience, if you're doing a panel of some kind, before you take Q&A, it's not a bad idea to let them know that any questions you have that are very specific in nature to your, your experience, you know, save it, come up, find us later. I find that when people get up to ask a question in a, in a big setting, their question is so focused on them and not relatable to the rest of the audience. That's a big time waster. Yeah. In the book, Bill introduces the seven principles of persuasion and dedicates a chapter to each one. We've talked a little bit about the headline principle and how not to open a conversation, things like agenda setting and clock watching. Bill, what are some of the other faux pas we need to be on the lookout for? The other great lie we've been told is start with a joke. Unless you have uh, improv experience and have done stand-up, I don't think that's a great idea because oftentimes jokes with a specific audience can fall flat. And if you start off with a joke and it lands with a thud, it is going to completely shake your confidence for the rest of the speech or the presentation. So I feel like that's, too risky a, a roll of the dice. I think you'd be much better off starting with a story that has humorous elements to it, but that the story or the punchline and payoff to the story is really central to the, to the theme of your entire talk. And that is a much better strategy than just telling a random joke that has no thematic connection to the content of what you're there to communicate. I joke about this a lot, but it's absolutely true. At every hour of the day, I have heard people apologize for the time slot that they have <laughs> to get up to speak to an audience. I've heard it at 9 a.m. They The first thing out of their mouth in front of the room is, listen, uh, I know uh, we had a late night. Everybody's really tired this morning. Um, I've heard it before lunch. Everybody's hungry. I know I'm the only thing standing between you and the buffet table. 
you know, right after lunch, everybody's sleepy from lunch. At the end of the day, everybody's tired. So don't let apology creep in and put this idea in the audience's head that listening to you is going to be an obligation and a chore. That's not what you should be doing. You should be rallying them to get psyched that what I have to communicate is really important and there's a lot of value to it. You're going to want to know it. The simple fact of the matter is you have the maximum engagement with your listener and your audience over the first five to 10 seconds of what you're going to say. And then you start to play a game of diminishing returns because people will drift. It's just a fact of life when you get up to speak to people or you're in a conversation. So if you've got their keenest attention right off the bat, why not lead with something that you really want to communicate? That's the most important aspect of this conversation or this presentation. Don't create this long, gradual build to an eventual reveal of what's important. Start off right off the bat with what you think is most important for them to know. And then maybe illustrate that idea with something very visual, an example, a story. Um, you know, I think you, I know in your podcast, you've, you've had this as a subject, how to be a better storyteller. Mm. And, uh, that that's enormously important because there are all these statistics and studies that stories are 6,000 times more memorable than facts and pictures are 22 times more likely to be remembered than words. So that's so important to make your point heard is to not just stay on this abstract and theoretical plane. And I like the way you laid this out in the book, uh, specifically the storytelling chapter. I think you call it the Scorsese principle. And and you say that the antidote to boredom is utilizing great anecdotes. Uh, And and I want to dig into this a little bit because it it does seem to me that a lot of folks struggle with this idea of of storytelling. They don't consider themselves good storytellers. They're not exactly sure how to get into it. And and you you list uh, the formula, like uh, the setup, the build, uh, the reveal, the exit. I wondered if you could take some time to to describe those in a little bit more detail. Sure. It's not unlike a joke in that I think there is a setup to a story. You want to set the visual scene. Um, you want to build some kind of tension in the story that makes the the listener want to know how this how this gets resolved or how this pays off. And then ultimately you want to have some kind of reveal what eventually happened in this story. You're pulling them along to want to really know the outcome. And the important part of this is that everybody's attention span is going to be different. You may have a story you tell that takes 45 seconds to tell. And and traditionally that has gone over well and people have enjoyed it and they've been engaged. But now you may find yourself at a function where the person across from you is a little bit more impatient and you're getting the sense that they're getting fidgety during your buildup and your setup. So I think you have to think of storytelling as somewhat collapsible. You want to be able to have certain details that you truncate and cut to the reveal faster as you read your audience, as you get an understanding for what their threshold of the length of your storytelling is. And I find that 
one of the biggest mistakes people make in storytelling is they have only one version that they use. And regardless of how interested their audience seems, I'm going to tell it the way I have always told it. And that is not as effective as reading your audience and, and maybe leapfrogging to that reveal a little bit earlier so you don't lose them completely. Though I feel like we've dug pretty deep into the content of Bill's book, in reality, we've only covered about four chapters of what is a 13-chapter book. So I encourage you to pick it up and dive into it a little deeper. But I do want to kind of end the book discussion uh, with this, Bill. Among all the communication lessons that you've learned, if you had to narrow it down to a central theme or idea, what kind of advice would you give? I think demonstrating your enthusiasm for the value of what you're sharing with the audience is absolutely essential. I think that the audience is following your cue. And if you seem as though you're in a paint-by-numbers, mail-it-in kind of mode, you are not going to stir them to pay attention. You actually have to lead by example and show that even though this presentation may be the 20th time you're giving it, you have to deliver it with the kind of certainty and conviction and enthusiasm for its value that you did the very first time. And so you need to see yourself as um, really rallying people's attention and engagement when, when you speak to them. Uh, it will be infectious if you demonstrate it. And also having on display this absolute certainty uh, behind your ideas. Um, you know, people will disagree with you. And I think it's fine to validate other people's um, skepticism, but don't let it torpedo you completely. You want to really have a well thought out, well rehearsed idea of how you're going to support your ideas if you wind up being challenged in a meeting, in a presentation, or even one on one with your boss. Sometimes communication is a lot like chess. You want to go into the game really knowledgeable about your own game plan, but you also want to anticipate other people's moves. And if I put forward this idea, it's likely that the person on the other side of the desk may challenge me with this kind of question. How do I respond to that when I hear it? it it's really helpful sometimes to think two or three moves ahead. Well, you've, Bill, had the opportunity to, to impact a lot of people with your work. Uh, you mentioned Facebook and working with Sheryl Sandberg and, and Mark Zuckerberg, of course, and people like Eli Manning and actress Catherine Heigl and Wynton Marsalis and folks like that. At, at the end of the day, what do you hope your legacy to be? It's interesting because so many times at the end of a session, I have had uh, the trainee say, wow, that was, that was really helpful. It, it really helped me think differently about some things I've always struggled with and how I articulate myself. Do you have any, any book you know of that I could read to sort of keep this training going? And for years, I would say, you know, I, I haven't really come across one <laughs> that, I, I, that really hits the nail on the head. And so... My big motivation for, for writing this book was to replicate as close as I could an in-person one-on-one coaching session that covers just about any kind of high-stakes communication scenario you could find yourself in. So I've 
had people who've gotten an advanced copy of the book write to me and say, I'm so glad you sent me that, that copy because I, I read it and then I went in for my first job interview in you know, 15 years. You know, I stopped to raise my kids and I've been out of the workforce. And after I read your book, I really went back and changed my answers that I planned to say. And I heard from this friend of mine in London who went for this job interview and she said, I got the job. And I performed in the interview very differently because I had these tips ringing in my head from, from your book. So to me, that's, that's the greatest reward to hear that people are able to overcome things that have always dogged them to have their verbal communication turn into an asset instead of a liability. And that's what I was really attempting to accomplish with this book. Well, I love the way it's laid out. And, and, and as you well know, you're applying your own principles of persuasion uh, chapter mm-hmm. by chapter with things like headlines and then storytelling. And that's mm-hmm. one of my favorite parts of the book is digging into those stories that begin each chapter uh, because that just really helps helps it hit home and illustrate in the real world how, how these principles can, can be applied. So I've, I've really enjoyed reading it. Thank you very much, Jeff. I really appreciate that. In that this is a podcast that espouses the benefits of reading consistently and intentionally, I was wondering if you could share with us a couple of books that you've read in the last few years or recently that have had an impact on on you and maybe share how or why they impacted you as they did. I'm a big fan of Adam Bryant of Corner Office oh, yeah. uh, section of the New York Times, and um, I r- really loved his first book. I also um, love the second book he just came out with about a month ago, quick and nimble, quick and nimble. (laughs) And, um, you know, because I'm also the head of a company. So I found his collection of leadership lessons from really interesting and diverse group of people, incredibly valuable. And, and a lot of the ideas in those books are, are creative. They're not just, um, routine leadership lessons. So the, 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 those books are, I've really enjoyed, and Adam's a great writer. Um, and I also, obviously, a big fan of Lean In. Cheryl probably ignited such an important conversation with that book. And it's so thought-provoking, and it really does make you think very differently about, I know the, the women that I work with as clients have said that that book has been enormously influential in how they how they see themselves um, in their terms of their career and their life. And someone who I know well, Nell Scavell wrote that with, um, with Cheryl, who's a fantastic writer. So the, those are two that really jump out. Interesting that you mentioned them. We were uh, uh, thrilled and fortunate to have Adam on about, about six weeks ago. I think it was episode 32. And then Cheryl's on the, the bucket list uh, to have yes. one at some point in the future. Uh, what is the uh, official launch date for the book? I want to make sure we know what that is. And, and where's the best place for us to find you and connect with you on the web? The book, which is called Pitch Perfect, How to Say It Right the First Time Every Time, is uh, being published April 1st. And uh, I am not superstitious at that date. <laughs> We're trying not to be. And uh, the best place to find me on the web is at bepitchperfect.com. So that's B-E pitchperfect.com. 
And the book is available for pre-order now, I would assume, right? It is. Uh, it's available on Amazon. I'm very thankful that Amazon has it as one of its spring picks. And uh, also very, very thankful to the people at Fast Company that have identified it as one of the top 10 reads of 2014. So and the bottom line is I just want it to be really helpful, beneficial, and useful to people in not just presenting in front of your boss or giving a speech. It's how to say you're sorry and mean it, how to take responsibility for something you did wrong and not have it sabotage you, how to talk up your boss at a, at a party, how to give a toast. Uh, you know, there are just a lot of different professional and personal scenarios that I hope that people will find the advice very useful. Well, I know when I uh, discovered it uh, in uh, Success Magazine, the latest issue, there's a blurb on your book in the reading list section, and I saw myself in some of the the, the communication faux pas, and I thought, I've got to interview this guy. I've got to get that book. So thank you to Success Magazine for, for turning me on to that, and also to Mariko Takahashi, who uh, was wonderful. She is wonderful. We just connected literally three days ago. She got me the book the next day, and here we are talking. So I really appreciate her efforts on that as well. And so I'm enjoying the book, Bill, and I really, really mean that. I don't say that lightly. I'm really getting a lot out of it, and I highly recommend it to everyone. Thank you so much, Jeff. I really appreciate you having me on today. I have found Bill's book to be so practical. I highly encourage you to pick it up if you're looking to improve your communication skills, whether at work, at home, in front of large groups of people, whatever it might be, this book is a great how-to for improving your communication skills. There's a link to the book in the show notes. You can pre-order it now, as we mentioned, readtoleadpodcast.com slash 037 for episode 37. If you'd like to network with Bill, one of the best ways to do that is on Twitter. He's Bill McGowan 22 That's at Bill McGowan, M-C-G-O-W-A-N-22 on Twitter. The Read to Lead podcast, by the way, makes a great conversation starter. Everything you'd like to know about Bill, his new book, plus each of the things we talked about today, the resources and links discussed can be found at the show notes page created especially for this episode. Again, that's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 037. Please remember our sponsor, Podcaster Academy. And remember, you can attend Module 1 of Podcaster Academy in April absolutely free. Just send an email to info at podcasteracademy.com and put the word attend in the subject line. And lastly, I would greatly appreciate it if you'd rate and review the podcast. This helps keep it in front of new people. And if you give it a five-star rating and leave a written review so I know who you are, I'll be sure to mention you by name in an upcoming episode as a way to say thanks. To rate and review the podcast, just visit readtoleadpodcast.com slash iTunes or readtoleadpodcast.com slash Stitcher or better yet, both. Got a brand new five-star rating and review in Stitcher. Thank you, Jordan Collier at jcollierblog.com. Says he always looks forward to listening to the Read to Lead podcast. And three brand new five-star ratings and reviews in iTunes. Thank you, John Dennis from Smart Time Online. We appreciate your comments. Says he loves the show. And also Chicago Val from inspirationwithval.com. Calls it one of her new favorites. And Herbie from billionsuccess.com says value-packed 
interviews. Thank you so much, guys. That's going to do it for this edition of the Read to Lead podcast. I look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks so much for listening to the Read to Lead podcast. As a subscriber, we challenge you to be more than just a passive listener. Become a vital member of the community. Visit us on the web at readtoleadpodcast.com and chat with other members at facebook.com slash readtoleadnation. Until next time, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Don't go changing to try to please me. You never let me down before. Mm-hmm. Don't imagine you're too familiar. And I don't see you anymore. I would not leave you. In times of trouble, we never could have come this far. Mm-hmm. I took the good times, I'll take the bad times, I'll take you just the way you are.